This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. To 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll uh, start reading in verse 1, which is where we had started last week. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. I wonder how we would define uh, success in ministry. I was watching the news last night and a pastor of a, a very large church was being interviewed on a, on a uh, political issue and the commentator says, now you're, you're the pastor of of a mega church, right? And he said, yeah. And so it was a mega church. Is that, is that the standard of success? We think about success in ministry, and oftentimes we measure it in ways that may not be very biblical. And I would suggest that probably today one of the main ways that ministry is measured is um, the popularity of the preacher. There is uh, no doubt sort of a, sort of a celebrity culture, right, uh, for pastors and preachers today. And I remember years ago, Grandma Lane, I don't think I've ever quoted Grandma Lane in a sermon, this was a first, she said, if you, she goes, this is, this is the way that you know what's happening in the church. Sunday morning will tell you how popular the preacher is. Sunday nights will tell you how popular the church is. But Wednesday nights will tell you how popular God is. <laughs> now, I don't know. <laughs> that uh, Grandma Lane was the fount of wisdom or not. But um, it's nothing new, actually. We kind of think that this celebrity culture is uh, something new. Uh, I certainly find it distasteful. I've been to conferences where there are lines of people to have some famous preacher sign their Bible. And um, 
which just seems weird to me. It's not like you wrote it. And um, long lines to um, be able to shake somebody's hand. And, but none of this is actually new. There's always been this tendency towards a preacher-celebrity type culture. In fact, that's what Paul's dealing with. In some degree, that's what Paul's dealing with with these Corinthians. So they had the idea that, that, uh, that their preacher, their favorite preacher, was uh, really a celebrity, was really somebody, was somebody of incredible status. But it, it doesn't just go back to Paul's day. I mean, it was during um, the early church, a great story. There was a, a preacher by the name of Chrysostom, which actually was not his real name, it was his nickname. Chrysostom means golden mouth. And he was known for his powerful, powerful preaching. And uh, he preached, he's one of the Greek fathers, he preached uh, to large, large congregations of thousands upon thousands. And he was such a moving preacher that there was a there was a practice in those days. If you went to theater or went to hear uh, an orator, uh, when there was something that was said that you really, really liked, you didn't clap your hands, you stomped your feet. And Chrysostom would be preaching and all of a sudden there'd be 10,000 people in this cathedral stomping their feet. And of course, Chrysostom hated it. He'd stop. And tell them to knock it off. Okay. During the time of the Reformation, it was a celebrity mentality. Now, of course, we have our own little cultural nuances on what a celebrity is, but you had people that, that started calling themselves Lutheran. You remember what Luther said? He couldn't believe that people were calling themselves after his unworthy name. And he says, and what is Luther but a stinking bag of maggots? Celebrity preacher mentality continued on. I mean, even, uh, believe it or not, even during the Puritan era, where you had within just a few square miles of each other, John Owen and Thomas Goodwin and, and a whole host of luminaries whose writings are still in print to this day, and there was constantly this discussion among London churchgoers, who are we going to go here today? And of course, it continues on in our day. When I went to Biola in Southern California, it was a veritable Christian Disneyland one Sunday I could go and hear Chuck Swindoll, and the next Sunday I could go and hear uh, Chuck Smith, and the next Sunday I could go hear Raul Reese. Never was tempted to go hear Robert Schuler, just so you know. Okay. But with the TV and, and the internet, the celebrity preacher culture is, is rampant. And one of the questions about this culture that we need to ask is, is this. Does the preacher feed the celebrity culture? Or does it exist in spite of him? In other words, we need to ask, 
what is the preacher trying to do to point men away from himself and point them to Christ? And I would, I would say, uh, woe to those who feed the celebrity culture and bless those who do everything they can to rein it in. One of the balancing acts, of course, that you get is this tension between, on the one hand, the importance of appreciating those who teach the word, and on the other hand, not elevating them beyond what is appropriate. There is a place, First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12, where Paul says um, that we should actually appreciate those. Literally, it is you should know those who labor in the word and govern over, watch over your souls. You should appreciate them. That, that's normal. Uh, remember those, Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who teach the word of God to you. Those who labor, 1 Timothy 5, 17, those who labor in the word and doctrine are worthy of double honor. And so how do you go from having a healthy appreciation for those who labor for the good of your souls to making sure that you are not elevating them in a way that dishonors the Lord Jesus? One thing that is vitally important is for us to remember that no matter who the preacher is, that preacher was a sinner saved by grace, just like every single one of us, and the gifts that that preacher has are only gifts that come by grace, and therefore, although we should have a good appreciation, we should never elevate men. Now, the Corinthians, of course, had fully embraced this idea of the celebrity preacher. The, the problem for the Corinthians, though, and there's, there's a little bit of a, of a, of a nuance, of a little bit of a, a, a detail for the Corinthians. The Corinthians were not just people who were like overly fond of their favorite preachers, but they were overly fond of their favorite preachers in a way that ironically fed their own pride and ended up diminishing the gospel. In that sense, those that the Corinthians had elevated uh, were being elevated not through the fault of the preachers who were saying, elevate me, elevate me, but rather it was through the Corinthians who were feeding their own pride attaching themselves to mere human beings in a way that made themselves look smarter and more spiritual and wiser. Now, what Paul's going to do in this text that we're going to look at tonight, it's actually, it's a short text because it's it's repetitive and the statements are are very concise. And Paul's going to say a whole lot more in chapter 4, especially, and chapter 9, about the proper perspective on the Christian ministry and a proper perspective on the servants of Christ. But he begins here. And what he has to say will put Christ's servants in a proper perspective and will give us, as it were, the proper tools 
to accurately evaluate ministries and actually help us to evaluate what what is true success in the Christian ministry, all right? So last week, we looked at verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4 really is sort of a transitional passage. And of course, Paul gets down, as it were, to the nitty-gritty in verses 1 through 4, because what he's doing is he is he's now telling the Corinthians uh, in no uncertain terms what their problem is. He's been rather gentle and uh, delicate up to this point. But in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, he finally just comes out and says, you know what, I wanted to talk to you as men of the Spirit, as, 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 as Christians who live and act and think as people of the Spirit, but I wasn't able to do it because you are acting like people who just simply belong to this age. And you're acting like people who are just merely human. Little tiny babies in Christ. I'm, I'm trying to, to, to talk to you and speak to you. And you just look at me and, and drool. He says, and, and again, probably we'll restate this a hundred times by the time we're done with 1 Corinthians. We cannot read certain passages in a way that actually just feeds right into the Corinthian theology of a spiritual elitism, all right? Paul says, I wanted to give you, I had to give you milk, although I wanted to give you food. Remember, for Paul, the gospel is both milk and meat, and the problem with the Corinthians was not, not just simply that they hadn't progressed far enough. Their problem was is that they weren't comprehending. They, things weren't computing for them. They weren't seeing uh, the, the, the clear implications of the cross. They weren't seeing the, 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 the clear message that, that, that a crucified Messiah demands a humility before God, a renunciation of our own wisdom. And instead they were trying to mix their own philosophy and love of knowledge and wisdom in with the gospel. And Paul says, your problem is not just simply that you're babies. Your problem is, is that you don't really comprehend what I'm talking about. And the issue is, is that you're characterized by the flesh. And then Paul returns directly to that initial theme of division. And he turns around and he says, how in the world can you think that you're people of the spirit when, when you're filled with jealousy and contention and you're quarreling and fighting with each other and the heart of your division is your allegiance to, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. When you act like that, you're just acting like ordinary human beings. Void of the spirit. You're, you're just walking like men. What a warning to us. You know, we could apply that to virtually every area of our life, could we not? You know, in, in, in our marriage, are we just walking like just ordinary people, void of the Spirit? What about, here's, 
Okay, this, this is for me as much for anybody. What about in our politics? Do we, actually, or do we just go at it as just mere men? Or does the Spirit of God factor in to any of it for us? And so Paul just lambasts them and reminds them that their boasting in their human teachers is just altogether too human. Now, what he's going to do is, and again, this is, he's in the same ballpark, but notice what he starts to do. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? So, so now he's going to start um, now re- focusing on what are God's servants anyway? If this is the source of your jealousy and contention and, and your division, let's get something straight. And notice, Paul begins tearing down this celebrity perspective by deflating himself and Apollos. That's what he's doing. He is deflating the elevated positions that he and Apollos had been placed in. And uh, we, we, we might ask, why does he only mention Apollos and himself here? Whereas in chapter 1, he mentioned Apollos, Paul, Cephas, and Christ. And the answer probably is because Paul and Apollos were the only ones who had personally ministered in Corinth, okay? Peter probably had never been to Corinth, and certainly Jesus had never been to Corinth. But Paul and Apollos were actually the, the, uh, the, the feet on the ground, the sandals on the ground, if you will, in Corinth who administered the gospel. And notice, this is, this is really something. He begins with sort of a semi-derogatory What is Apollos? What is Paul? Notice he doesn't say, who is Apollos? Or who is Paul? If he would have done that, he would have used the masculine pronouns. Instead, he uses neuter pronouns neuter interrogative pronouns for those of you who care. What? There's just something that's actually a little derogatory about it. What is Paul? Now, you could have made the same point by saying, who is Paul, right? But instead he goes, what is Paul? Gordon Fee just makes this note. He says, this is, this is pure rhetoric just expressing disdain for the way the Corinthians had elevated them. Uh, Another commentator says what Paul's doing is he's diffusing, at this point, the personality cult controversy. Just what, what are we? And then he answers the question, and he answers it in a way that is really um, beautiful, balanced. He says, servants through whom you believed. So, So here's Paul's answer. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Well, I'm going to tell you. First, number one, servants. Now, you might know that this, this word, uh, there, there are different words for servants 
in the New Testament. There's a handful of them. This particular word, diakonos, is is in fact the word that we later derive the word deacon. But diakonos does not mean deacon in and of itself. Diakonos actually has the idea, this is from Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, generally one who's busy with something in a matter that is of assistance to someone else, or one who gets something done at the behest of a superior, an assistant to somebody. Now, the, the, the idea of a diakonos, sometimes you've heard it said that they were table waiters, that that's a common expression, and frequently a diakonos was somebody who did something that was a menial service in assistance to somebody else. And so here's Paul, and you have to understand what he's doing is, <clears throat> by the way, if, if you have a translation that says ministers through whom you believe, ministers actually is counterproductive to the point that Paul's trying to make. Because what have we done with the word minister? The word minister does mean servant, but we don't usually use the word minister in a low status way. We usually use it in a higher status way. And by the way, one thing that you'll never hear in this place is Reverend Ching. Okay? Ever. Okay. Reverend. Spurgeon, Spurgeon had a disdain for clergy that were called reverend. And here's the idea that diakonos, just an assistant, just somebody who, who is helping a superior. And so it's a lower status. There's, there's really, there, by the way, there was nothing glamorous about being a diakonos in the first century. And they're God's servants, and therefore they are servants of the gospel and servants of the church. And by Paul identifying himself and Apollos as servants, all he's doing is he is aligning himself and Apollos with the pattern of our Lord Jesus, who said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so all Paul is doing is saying, I'm actually just, I'm following in the train of our Lord Jesus, who was a servant and in fact, our Lord Jesus was, was the quintessential servant, was he not? Even in the upper room uh, in John chapter 13, what does he do? He actually takes a, the servant's towel, girds himself with it, takes the basin, fills it with water, and does that which was only reserved for the lowest of servants and washes the disciples' feet. And our Lord Jesus says something. By the way, Paul's language, in a sense, reflects that he was very familiar with the servant teaching of our Lord Jesus. And Paul says, we're just servants. And then notice this, through whom? You believed. That little through whom, by the way, is, is important because what Paul is saying is we, we were servants and we were servants who were simply instruments in God's hand and those instruments that God used to bring you to faith. That's all we were. 
We were simply the human instruments that God used to get the message to you so that we are the ones through whom you believed. And so notice what what Paul does not do is he doesn't say um, we're dung. He doesn't say we're trash, we're garbage. He says we're servants through whom you believe. So he doesn't completely dismiss his role and Apollos' role. But he puts it in perspective. David Pryor says, they, Paul and Apollos, are insignificant compared with God himself, who gives the growth, but they're vital to the divine scheme of things. In other words, they're they're instruments in God's hands. At the end of the day, that's what God's servants are. Are instruments, tools, utensils by which he accomplishes his purposes. Then there's this uh, interesting little phrase. I don't even know how the ESV did it. I, I didn't take time to look. Um, even as the Lord gave, notice the way the New American Standard does this. Even as the Lord gave opportunity, notice opportunity is in italics to each one. What's the ESV do? Do you have the ESV with you? You brought your Greek text? Okay. I want to ask you what the Greek text says. Anybody have the ESV? Okay, as the Lord assigned to each. Okay, okay. So I really don't know what the New American Standard was thinking. Opportunity, I don't know why that comes even, that doesn't even... Seem to make sense to me. That last little phrase just is literally just this. And to each as the Lord gave. Now, there, it's a little ambiguous. It, it could refer, of course, to the idea. Uh, so we're servants through whom you believed. And to each one as the Lord gave the gift of faith. Something like that. So it could be a reference to the idea of the gift of faith or the way that the ESV is taking it, which I think is correct, could refer to the fact that the tasks that have been given to the servants or assigned for the servants. So the NIV, which I don't usually quote favorably either, actually did a good job here. Funny, I looked at the NIV, but not the ESV. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. Now, the reason I think this is the right one is because what it does is it anticipates what he's going to say in verses 6 and 7. That is, there's going to be tasks that are different. And so here's the idea. Paul says, what are we? Well, I'll tell you what we are. We're lowly servants. We're assistants. We're we're helpers. We're, uh, you know, we're table waiters in God's program and we're just instruments that God used to bring you to faith. And, and, and God actually assigned to us as his servants tasks for each one of us. All we're doing is fulfilling the tasks. You remember Jesus' teaching, I, I, I think it's in um, is it Luke 17, where Jesus is talking about being a servant. And when the king says to the servant, um, uh, you serve me first and then you can eat and then you go out and do this and do that. When the servant does what he has been told to do, he still says, 
I am just an unworthy servant who has done what I was supposed to do. In other words, Paul, Paul's not elevating himself as, you know, we are these mighty servants of God. We are the anointed. We are, we are God's generals. We are God's champions. You know, there was none of that triumphalism in Paul. It was really simple. We're servants through whom you've believed, and we're just doing what we've been assigned to do. Doing what we've been called to do. You, you know, if you want to, if you want to boil Paul's life down, you could probably do it by by looking at Acts two twenty four, where he says the idea that you know basically all I'm doing is I'm completing the course that the Lord put in front of me. That's the totality of my life. God had called me, God equipped me, and God sent me, and God gave me a task to do, and I'm here to do it. And as Robert Murray McShane said, who died at 29 years old, you're immortal until you're finished doing the task God's given you to do. Now, I couldn't help the, this title, Plowboys, Waterboys, and God. It, it actually sets something in perspective for us. There's this, there's this wonderful structure in verses 6 and 7. I tried to capture it in your notes there. There's this, um, there's this balance, I planted, so then neither the one planting. Apollos watered, so then neither the one who waters is anything, but God caused it to grow, but God who causes the growth. There's this wonderful little balance there. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 6. Now he's going to talk about what he and Apollos were assigned to do. And they were assigned to do different things. I planted. Apollos watered. Of course, if you're Lutheran, that's obviously baptism. That's a joke. Planted. Agricultural imagery. This is the way that Paul viewed his his ministry. I'm a planter. And what are you doing when you're planting? Well, you're trying to actually produce a crop, right? Nobody goes out and plants just for the fun of it. Planting, of course, is bigger than just throwing seed out there. For instance, this word is used of planting a vineyard. Well, what's involved in planting a vineyard? Well, there's, there's cultivation, preparation, sowing the seed, tending, and so forth. And so Paul, Paul views himself as the uh, planter, which would be another way of saying the, the one who lays the foundation, which you'll say a little later in this very chapter, um, the, the one who is the, um, uh, the one that puts the foundation down upon which other people are going to come and build. He's the founding pastor. He's the, the planting pastor. And then Apollos watered. Apollos was the one in charge of the irrigation, which of course also requires cultivation and planning and trying to figure out how to get the water to the plants. And this is the idea of Apollos is teaching and he's building up the church for what purpose? So that it could grow. Now, Paul and Apollos had different ministries. 
and they had different emphases. But neither one of them were the ones that were responsible for the success. Paul says, and God caused the growth. I had my job, Apollos had his job, and you know what? And God caused it to grow. Obviously, at this point, what Paul is pointing to is the sovereign work of God through his servants. And so the life of the crop and, and, and the growth of the crop depended wholly and completely upon God. There is, there's, by the way, there's something that is built into nature that demonstrates the, that the hard work of the farmer, um, he can only do so much. The real success for farming actually lies outside of his ultimate control. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we do not have an appreciation for the sovereign providence of God over his world like a farmer would. A farmer is out there tilling the soil and getting it ready and then goes and plants and makes sure that the water gets there and hopes and prays that it doesn't rain too much or that it doesn't freeze and a whole host of things that are completely outside of his control. And Paul says, you know what? I did my thing. Apollos did his thing. And God is the one who... So it doesn't depend on the preacher. It doesn't depend upon the planter. It doesn't depend upon the the waterer, the, the water boy, if you will. It depends completely on God. And then Paul turns around and, and he says, by the way, he says makes a parallel statement, so then, so he makes this, 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 this concluding parallel statement, so then, the one planting nor the one watering is anything. That's quite a thing to say. I mean, Paul, you were an educated man. You, you, you studied under the great uh, Jewish theologians of your day. You were a man of, of, uh, of great power in preaching and teaching and, and, and incredible author. And Paul, you did all of these great things. And, and of course, Apollos was mighty in the scriptures and was eloquent and filled with the spirit and was a great preacher. And now Paul turns around and he says, you know what? The one that planned and the one that waters, they aren't anything. Paul is downplaying the importance of the various servants in their various roles. Now, to be sure, this is not all that Paul has to say about those who labor in the word, but It is what the Corinthians desperately needed to hear in order to deflate their inflated views. If you have, you know, if you had a church that was mistreating its pastor, Paul would probably say something different. But here you had these Corinthians who were putting these guys up on pedestals, and Paul says, look, at the end of the day, those guys are nothing. The only one who really matters is the one who causes the growth. And that's God. In fact, he says it in really a pretty neat way, but the one who makes things grow, God. 
I tried to capture the, uh, more of a literal sense in your, in your notes. So then neither the one planting nor the one watering is anything, but the one who makes things grow, fill in the blank. He's the one that's really something, and it's God. It's God's activity. It's God's activity through the planting. It's God's activity through the watering. It is God's activity in it, through it, and over all of it in which God displays his supremacy. I I have to read this quote to you from Gordon Fee. He says, without God's prior activity, bringing them to faith and causing them to grow, there's no church at all. Hence, the point is clear. Stop quarreling over those whose tasks are nothing in comparison with the activity of God. Focus on God alone, for God alone saves and sanctifies. It's only God who makes things grow. I love this. I I really, I, I, I revel in this. Because... In September of 1993, Ariel and I got into a uh, a Hertz rent-a-truck and took Ashley and Zach and drove from Portland, Oregon to here, and this is where we love it. This is where we want to live the rest of our lives. This is where we want to serve, and we planted and did I plant well? I don't know. I hope so. I hope that I have employed the, the gifts that God has given. But there's always, always, over, over these last two decades plus, there's always been this sense that what God is doing is he's doing in spite of you, Borgman, not because of you. There are times where it's, it's like you're just standing on the sidelines watching God work in ways that go far beyond anything. You know, and it's, it, it's, it's actually somewhat humorous. People want to ask me questions about church planting, and I go, I don't know. We just had this simple idea. Take a Bible and preach it and be faithful and try to love people and try to follow what the Bible says. It's pretty simple. That's how we plant it. And so the one that plants is nothing. The one that waters is nothing. It's God who causes things to grow. And so, I don't know why I closed my Bible. And notice the next part, verse 8. Paul says, I love this too. The one planting and the one watering are one. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means there's a unity in the work, 
Okay, that's, that's what he's talking about. He's not saying that he and Apollos are indistinguishable because they are one. He's saying that there is a unity in the work. In other words, the goal is the same. The guy that's out there planting and the guy that's out there watering, they both have the same goal. They both have the same purpose in the task that's been assigned to them, and that is to bring forth a good crop. And so there is this, this unity in, in ministerial labor. And, and by the way, that emphasis of unity in ministerial labor is a correction to the Corinthians who would want to divide the church based on who their favorite preacher was. Paul says, stop it. The one who plants and the one who waters, we're one. We're we're both trying to achieve the same thing. And yet we might have different tasks, but guess what? Our tasks work in concert with each other. I really, I couldn't help just thinking of, of, the way that our eldership works together and, and, and especially in the ministry of the word. So here for, for, for many, many years, um, I did, I did virtually all the preaching Wednesday, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. And, and, and I was completely fine doing that. And then God brought Jason. And for the first time in like 20 years, I thought, there's someone that could share the ministry of the word with me regularly. And my job is a little different than his job, but we're still shooting at the same goal. We're still working for the same purpose. His style is a little different than my style. I don't roll up my sleeves and look cool and have the hair and all that, and that's fine, okay? It's different, but that's fine because the one who plants and the one who waters are, are one. They're both working in harmony with each other to bring about the same purpose. And so that's, that's, what, that's what elders should do. The different gifts and, and the diversity among the unity is working together to achieve a common goal. And so there is this tremendous sense of everything should be working in harmony with with each other. And one of the things that really made me sad um, in one of my visits to the Far East was in talking with the pastors in the evenings, finding out the the, uh, oftentimes the rivalries that would take place within the church so that so that there would be posturing to try to make sure um, that you got to preach more than the other guy because the whole goal was to gain adherence to yourself and to exercise more influence and there was just this this internal strife in so many churches from from these guys. You can't preach Christ if you're trying to preach yourself. And, you know, Paul, in, in Philippians chapter 1, this, is always, this has always blown me away. I don't know exactly what he means, but he says that there were some... So here's Paul, he's, he's under house arrest, and he says there are some who are preaching the gospel out of rivalry in order to make things harder for me. 
Now, I don't know exactly what, what that actually looked like. I don't know exactly why other people preaching and preaching with a, a rivalrous spirit and, and, and try to make things harder for Paul. I don't understand all that, how that works. But our, our, our initial reaction would be if somebody's out there trying to preach and, and upstage me and make life hard for me, ugh, man, if I could just get a hold of that guy, I would, I would lay hands on him in Jesus' name. And Paul says, you know, I'm actually really happy about it because Christ is being preached. And so whether out of, whether out of bad motives, out of rivalry, or out of good motives, I rejoice Christ, the gospel's being preached. That's what, that's what Paul cared about. And here it's reflected. Now, just, just knowing what you know about Apollos, knowing what you know about the Corinthians, who do you think, on the whole, was more popular among the Corinthians, Apollos or Paul? I, I, I put my money on Apollos, okay? And Paul says, you know what? We're both, we're both going for the same thing, both working for the same goal. And then he says, but each one will receive reward according to his labor. Ah, although they work in concert with each other for the same goal, there is certainly individuality that comes when it comes to giving an account. In other words, Apollos was not going to get a reward or a reprimand for Paul's work, and Paul was not going to get a reward or a reprimand for Apollos' work. Uh, Paul is actually really clear is that there is a sense in which um, I'm going to stand before God as the one who planted, and I'm responsible for how I planted, what I planted, how I built it, and, and just as sure as Apollos and anybody else. Anybody else. Now, Paul is, is, is actually anticipating another section here, verses 10 to 15, where he's going to talk about the evaluation of ministry for the Corinthians, and he is going to, in a sense, equip them, hopefully, to be able to assess how those who are laboring among them now should be evaluated, but there's a real sense in which, in, in which Paul is saying, now, the one who is laboring in the word has to make sure that he watches over his own heart and watches over his own labor because he can receive a reward from God for his labor, but he's also going to have to give an account with what he built with. Because Paul's going to expand on this in in 10 to 15, we're not going to spend too much time on it. But I will tell you this. It is a sobering thing to know that you'll stand before God one day and give an account for your labor. And it won't matter what people thought. Paul's going to revisit this very theme in chapter 4. What people think 
is of no consequence on the last day. There's only one opinion that, that counts on the last day. Just one. And it's not yours. And it's not mine. It's the God who knows all things. And notice, the reward comes from who? Well, it comes from the Lord, right? Which, in, in Paul's terminology, Lord almost always refers to the Lord Jesus. The reward does not come from the Corinthians' flattery. Oh, it is so liberating actually to, to not live for the flattery of men as your reward. The praise of men as your reward. Now, of course, the Corinthians, they had this patronage system where they were used to buying their rhetoricians and their orators. And the fact is, is you couldn't buy Paul. He wasn't going to be owned by the Corinthians. The minute that you're owned by somebody, you have to say what they like or else you're out. Paul knew way better. He knew that he spoke before an audience of one. And so he said, you know, I'm going to get a reward from the Lord. Whether you like me or not, whether you love me or not. Now, I can tell you. Paul wanted to be loved by the Corinthians and it broke his heart when they turned on him. But there was something that was far more important than being loved by the Corinthians and it was this, faithfulness to God and to his word. And notice how he'll be judged according to his own labor. Ministerial labor, obviously. Kapos. The verb kapiao means to toil to the point of exhaustion. Studying, teaching, preaching, counseling, praying. I labor, striving with all energy, all heart, Paul says. Colossians 1. That's what Paul was supposed to do. That's what those who preach the word are supposed to do. It's labor. It's labor. Paul says, God's going to look at how I studied and God's going to look at how I taught and what I taught and what I told people when I tried to help them and God's going to look at at, at, at whether I prayed and God's going to look at all of those things. Then verse 9, he says, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now let me just say that, that this we are God's co-workers has been both mistranslated and misread over the years. The King James, very unfortunately, said we are laborers together with God. Which actually gives a total wrong sense to this. It's like, here are the, you know, um, when uh, Ariel was a waitress in Portland when I was in seminary, there was a guy named Bob Farrell. Some of you might, uh, if you lived in Sacramento, you knew Farrell's ice cream, okay? Bob Farrell owned all of the Farrell ice creams. He owned all of the Newport Bays and all, bunch of restaurants. Bob Farrell was the man. He was the owner. He was the master. He was Lord. And could you imagine one of the dishwashers 
coming up and saying, yeah, I'm fellow laborer with Bob. (laughs) It's not how a servant talks about his master. This is not, we are co-laborers with God. That is definitely not the point. It is we, Apollos and me in this case, are co-workers who belong to God. The genitive here is absolutely possessive. We belong to God. The reason we know that is not only is the other idea silly, but the next two descriptions are possessive as well. And so we, we are co-workers. Apollos and I, we're co-workers. Okay? We're, like, we're like dishwashers together. And we belong to God. Paul loved this word, by the way, co-workers. Soon ergos. Ergos is, is work soon with. We're, we're soon ergoi. We're, we, we work with each other. We work uh, in sync with each other. Paul uses this, by the way, of lots of different people in his life. And he mentions co-workers in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians, numerous times. Philippians, numerous times. Colossians and Philemon, co-workers. Paul didn't see himself as some hoity-toity apostle and everybody else was his servant. We're co-workers. We're in this boat together. In fact, years and years ago, some of you remember uh, old Jack Seaton. Jack Seaton pastored the Reformed Baptist Church of Inverness, Scotland, and he started that post uh, the year that I was born. And he labored there almost 50 years. And I used to go to a pastor's conference on the East Coast in New Jersey, and, and Jack, was, Jack was just kind of a big deal, you know, because he'd been offered the, the pastorate at the Metropolitan Tabernacle before Peter Masters took it. Um, instead, he decided to labor with this little group of people in the highlands of Scotland, and, uh, and Jack was... Jack was was revered as as a wonderful man of God. And so here I was, I was probably 20, 28 years old, 29 years old, something like that. And, and I'm walking out of the bathroom as Jack's walking in and I held the door and I said, hello, Pastor Seton. And in his wonderful Irish accent, he told me, enough of this Pastor Seton stuff. Brian, we're all in the same boat together. We're all in the same boat together. Call me Jack. And it was Jack ever since. It was Jack ever since. There, there of course, were some that you would never, ever dream of calling them by their first name. But for Jack, we're all in the same boat together. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the boat. (laughs) We're just in the same boat. And so Paul, as Paulus and I, we're co-workers. We belong to God. And then he turns around and he says, but you, you're God's field. And so he's picking up the agricultural imagery again and God's building. And what he's doing here is he's going to anticipate the next section where he's going to talk about building on the foundation. And so what he's saying is, you know what? Apollos and I belong to God as co-workers together, but you belong to God as God's projects. 
You're God's agricultural project. You're God's building project. You too belong to God. And so if we belong to God and you belong to God, then we're both yours. We belong to you. So why divide over who belongs to who? We're all in the same boat. Well, everything belongs to God. Isn't that wonderful to know? Everything belongs to God. God is supreme over everything. He is sovereign over all and in all. And therefore, because God is over all and everything belongs to him, it is, it is just, just frankly obscene to elevate his servants who are only instruments at the end of the day. They're not many gods. They're not lords. They're servants. And so God's servants are plowboys and water boys. By the way, if you ever played football in high school, how much esteem was there in being the water boy? The water boy was like nothing. Right. That's what God's servants are. Plowboys, water boys. I'm the plowboy. Jason's the water boy. It's God is the, who's the one that makes things happen. And our paradigm for ministry is servanthood. Being instruments in the Lord's hands for the good of his people. This, of course, doesn't mean that we abandon principles of leadership, and it doesn't mean that we become doormats and errand runners. But it means that we have an attitude that will not allow a celebrity culture to grow for Christ's sake. And so for Grace Community Church, your elders have different tasks. We have different roles but the same purpose. We all need to be careful that we don't allow certain attitudes to creep into our hearts so that we start to become like the Corinthians who were living like mere human beings. But rather, may we rejoice in God who is the one who really matters. The only one who really matters. One of these days, the Lord tarries, I'll be dead. Lord willing, this church will continue to go on. There is actually coming a day, if the Lord tarries, And Jason will be dead. We'll be worm food. And there will be a time where people will occupy these chairs. And they won't remember or know me or you. 
But as long as they know Christ, that is all that matters. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise tonight that you are the one who causes things to grow. We bless and praise your holy name. Father, we thank you for the gifts that you give to your church. We thank you for your servants. But Lord, we are mindful that all that you give to us, you give to us in order to point us back to you and to your son. We pray that we would be a church that is mindful of these truths. We pray that we would be good stewards of the gifts that you've given. And we pray, Father, that in everything, our Lord Jesus Christ would truly be the most important person in this place. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.